Let's see, I have a capo, several lyrics, chord charts. Who knows what's going to happen next? <laughs> you know, Larry, we're still waiting on that CD. <laughs> I want to thank you for praying for me while I was traveling. I always try to never be absent from TCF on Sunday unless I'm on some kind of ministry. And so I try to never be gone more than four consecutive Sundays. It poses a challenge sometimes because as I travel, there are various churches that ask me to come. And I never go anywhere I'm not invited. And usually there are more churches asking me to come than I can cover in four weeks. And that was certainly true on this trip. A real question arose uh, on the last Sunday. And by the way, as we travel from church to church, the Lord usually has us involved in some kind of problem solving. And the question I faced was, do I go to Waterbury, Connecticut, or do I go to Manchester, New Hampshire on the final Sunday? And both were vying and uh, the church at Manchester said we have a serious problem. There are some people in the church that have brought charges against the elders, one man in particular. And so both sides have decided that when you come to Manchester, if you will come, that you will sit and hear both sides, and whichever side you say is wrong will repent. What a horrible place to be. <laughs> but that outweighed the invitation from Waterbury. And I want to tell you it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. I, I received the document, several pages of charges. I went through the document. And then I summarized in each case what the particular charge was, avarice, pride, so and so on, prepared to deal with all of that. And as we got into the meeting, it became apparent that all of these things really weren't the issue, but the issue was distrust of the elders. But praise be to God, everybody in that meeting had a right heart. And so we were not forced to listen to two sides and pass judgment, but by the grace of God and the good hearts of all who were involved, we were able to see reconciliation tears, hugs, <laughs> and uh, two men especially who were at odds serving communion together. At least that was their plan. Isn't that beautiful to hear? Amen. So I, I just uh, thank you so much for praying. When we're off on these trips, that's the kind of stuff we often find ourselves involved in. Psalm 30, verse 12 that my soul may sing praise to you and not be silent, O Lord my God. I will give thanks to you forever. Romans 6.17 Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. Romans 7.25 Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. 1 Corinthians 15.57 Thanks be to God who give us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
2 Corinthians 2.14, Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. 2 Corinthians 8.16, Thanks be to God who put the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus. 2 Corinthians 9.15, Thanks be to God for His inscribable gift. Thanks be to God. On this Sunday before Thanksgiving, it would be very easy for me to bring a word of condemnation. Word of condemnation because we live in a very, very blessed place, everyone in this room. And none of us ever adequately gives thanks to God for the abundant blessings, this ocean of blessings in which we swim every single day. But of course, if I brought that kind of sermon, I would have to be the first to respond. If we formed a line for our sanctified elders to pray over, I would have to be first in line. Because I, as well as anyone, fail to express gratitude to God for the great blessings. If I didn't respond, I would be a hypocrite. Thanks be to God. You know, I don't believe that that's the kind of sermon God wants me to bring today. (laughs) I think our Lord wants me to bring a positive presentation. I pray a path that will alert us to our blessings and hopefully stir our hearts with gratitude unto this God. Thanks be to God. But first let me say, it is not wrong... As we swim in this ocean of blessings, it is not wrong to fixate upon a problem. Sometimes people try to heap guilt upon us. So all I think about is the problem when I ought to be thinking about the blessings. If you have a problem, you have to think about it, don't you? You have to put your thought to it. You have to put your hand to it. You have to solve it. So it's not wrong to focus, even perhaps be obsessed with the problem until it can be solved. But as we're doing so, we must never forget that we are swimming in a great ocean of blessings. Paul wrote the Philippians in Philippians 4, 6, Be anxious for nothing but in everything in prayer and thanksgiving. Uh, Make your requests known to God. So we make our requests. We focus on the problem. We try to solve it. But let us never forget we have this problem in the midst of an ocean of blessings. A couple of weeks ago, while I was in my early morning time of prayer and meditation, the song, Count Your Many Blessings, came to mind. And so I decided I'd do it. <laughs> and I got out a legal pad and I just started, okay, my, uh, the fortuitous circumstances into which I was born and, and the family into which I was born. And, and as I began to list all the blessings of my my childhood even, line after line after line after line, and flip a page, and on and on and on and on, became impossible to count all of my blessings. And frankly, the song says, it will surprise you what the Lord has done. I'm not surprised, because He's a good God, (laughs) and He is my shepherd You know, think about this, brothers and sisters. If we decided to cover these walls with white paper and we gave everybody in the room a felt marker 
And we said we're going to spend the rest of the day writing all of our blessings on the wall. I don't think the wall's big enough to contain the list of all of our blessings. So it's really impossible. But even so, this morning I'd like to lead us into consideration of how our God has blessed us. Hopefully stir our hearts to thanksgiving. First, thanks be to God for the physical blessings that he has poured out upon us. And I could just fill this morning, couldn't I, talking about all the physical blessings, food and clothing and shelter and so on and so on and so on. But let me just mention one and let it be representative of all of the others, and that one is water. (laughs) Thanks be to God for water. Survivalists say, you know, you can survive three weeks without food. That's why those who fast suggest you don't go more than 21 days. A healthy human can survive three minutes without air, and we can survive three days without water. Now, I could focus on air this morning, but let's focus about water. Uh, You who have traveled overseas to certain countries know that sometimes it's hard to find water, and the water you find you wouldn't dare drink. And so all you drink is tea because you know the water's been boiled. Some folks drink beer, but anything but the water. I remember when I was fly fishing in New Mexico when I was about 15 years old. I would put my canteen in the stream and fill it with water, and that would be on my belt. And all day I'd drink that. I wouldn't dare do that now. For every one of those streams has been contaminated since 1945 or 46. I've mentioned before in sermons about my mother as a little girl. Use it as an illustration. One of her tasks as a little girl was to leave the cabin and take a pail and go down to the spring and fill the bucket with water. And then as a little girl, strugglingly haul it back to the cabin. And she said, you know, one season she had to sit and wait because there was a panther at the spring and she couldn't draw the water till the panther left. Today her parents would be arrested for child abuse, wouldn't they? <laughs> water, hard to get. Some places water is worth more than gold. And some places people kill for water. But what do we do? Go to the sink, turn the tap, and there it is. Potable, drinkable, safe water. And you go to a restaurant and the waitress comes around and says, may I take your orders? And if you say, give me water, water with lemon, water with lime, or just water, it's free. It's free. As I was thinking about this, I was sitting at my desk and I had a glass of water. (laughs) And I, I thought, you know, I picked it up and I looked at it and I began to thank God for it and then I drank it. Water. Think about that. What a blessing God has given to those of us in this room in water. A simple thing we take for granted. And yet it represents all of the physical blessings that we have in many cases of which the world could never dream. God has so blessed us with physical blessings. Thanks be to God. For all the material blessings and all the physical pleasures. 
he gives to us. Thanks be to God that he has delivered us from hell. From hell. Now that's something a lot of people don't like to talk about, much less uh, even thinking about. Matter of fact, it seems that the subject of hell has become an embarrassment to many 21st century Christians. An embarrassment. And yet it's real. In 1996, the Canadian songwriter Sarah McLachlan wrote what, in my opinion, is one of the most beautiful songs written in the last quarter of the 20th century. The title is The Angel, and I'm sure you've heard it because it's been used so often on television as various commercials, one most recently about trying to get you to adopt adopt dogs and cats that have been abandoned as a picture of these sweet animals and behind it is that tune. On and on it goes. Now that's the chorus. And the words are in the arms of the angel. Fly away from here. From this dark, cold hotel room and the endlessness that you fear, you're pulled from the wreckage of your silent reverie. There in the arms of the angel, may you find some comfort there. Sarah McLaughlin wrote that song when Jonathan Melvoin, the traveling keyboard player of the Smashing Pumpkins, died in his motel room as a result of a drug overdose. And the angel in the song is heroin. You see, the song is about the struggles of a professional musician who tries and tries to get things right. He tries to achieve. He seeks success, continually fails, and keeps trying for one more chance. And in the loneliness of his motel room, he finds some blessed relief in heroin. Now, it's interesting because that song is so beautiful <laughs> and so emotionally moving, and because it speaks of the angel, many people have understood it to be referring to angelic beings. I read of one funeral director in Australia who said that that was the most requested song in his establishment for funerals. And understood that way, the song says that death, angels take us, every one of us, to a better place, to a place of comfort. And even if that person is a rascal, his family and loved ones say, oh yes, the angels have carried him to a better place. Truth is, not everybody goes to a better place. As a matter of fact, according to Scripture, most won't go to a better place. Most will end up in hell. Enter through the narrow gate. The gate is wide. The way it is broad that leads to destruction. There are many who enter through it, for the gate is small. The way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few that find it. 
Now, there are a variety of figures in Scripture that our Lord used to illustrate the fate of the damned. One term is Gehenna, which most of our Bibles render as hell. Now, Gehenna refers to the valley which is somewhat south of the ancient city of Jerusalem. It was a place where the god Moloch was worshipped. And the way you worship the god Moloch was bring your sons before him and burn them alive as a sacrifice to that god. During a time of apostasy, two of Israel's kings even succumbed to that worship. In 2 Corinthians, 2 Chronicles 28.3, King Ahaz is described as worshiping Moloch in that manner, burning his sons. In 2 Chronicles 33.6, King Ahaz is described as doing the same thing. And then came the reforming King Josiah. And Josiah, wanting to put a permanent end to that practice, defiled the valley. So no god of any kind could ever be worshipped there again. And by the time Jesus was upon the earth, that valley, that place where formerly Moloch had been worshipped, that place had been defiled, had become the garbage dump of Jerusalem. It's where they hauled all of their garbage. It's where they hauled animal manure. It's where they hauled human offal. When I think of a garbage dump, I think of the one of my childhood in Muskogee, just uh, on beyond Fond du Lac Street. There was always a fire. The place was crawling with maggots. A horribly filthy place. And it's interesting that our Lord used that as an illustration of a fate of the damned. Gehenna, the garbage dump. Not only is it called Gehenna, but it's also called outer darkness three times in Matthew 8, 12, 22, 13, and 25, 30. It's also called the lake of fire four times in Revelation. Thank God. Thanks be to God for delivering us from hell. Praise be His name. Thanks be to God for the cross of Jesus Christ. You know, sometimes when we're so busy doing the work of God, teaching children, learning songs, singing praises, uh, giving to those in need, whatever, we get so busy in our ministry that we tend to let the cross be something way back here. As a matter of fact, the longer we are Christians, we tend to do that because that was involved in our salvation. Now here we are doing all of these things for God. We need to be continually aware of the cross. That's why our Lord Jesus Christ established the Lord's Supper that every Sunday we come together to be reminded of the cross and this is our hope and we're going to spend eternity together in heaven because of the cross. Not because of all the work we've done for Him. Last Saturday morning I was sitting at breakfast with a man, which is my custom most of the days of the week. And as we were discussing various things, and I'm not sure exactly how it came up, but the Taj Mahal came up. You know, this beautiful, beautiful 
mausoleum that a Hindu, an Indian Hindu Raja built for his wife. She died giving birth to their 14th child. He sat with her through the night and he died so deeply in love with her that he built this amazing monument. And the man with whom I was sitting said, you know, I have heard that while that was being built, the Raja insisted that her casket be placed right in the middle so as they were building this beautiful building, they could not forget what they were building. A mausoleum for the princess, the queen. Now, I don't know whether or not that story is true. <laughs> Might not be. But isn't it an illustration of how our lives should be as we build our lives, as the church is being built that the cross must always be at the center. We must not forget the cross. This morning, thanks be to God for delivering me from a horrible fate. Thanks be, for, thanks be to God for delivering me from an eternal hell. Thanks be to God for guaranteeing me a place in heaven because of the cross. Thanks be to God for faithfully working to deliver us from ourselves. 1 Corinthians 6, beginning with verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, in this beautiful, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. You were, but now you are. God is faithfully delivering us from ourselves. Romans chapter 6 and 8, beautiful section, talks about the fact that before our conversion we were slaves of unrighteousness, but we entered the watery grave of Christian baptism and that person was buried and came forth to walk in newness of life now a slave of not unrighteousness, but righteousness. And you know, we know of some people in this body who when that happened, they were instantaneously delivered from some addiction, some habit, some obsession that had owned them. But for most of us, it doesn't work that way. And that's the point Paul is making in Romans 6. He says, consider yourselves. Think of yourself in this way. It, it's your attitude that will make a difference. Romans chapter 12 talks about this transformation as a metamorphosis. And metamorphosis takes a time. And for most of us, it's a battle. Paul in Philippians 3.12, Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on 
so that I may hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. For most of us, it's a battle. Why doesn't God deliver all of us instantly when we come to Him? God is more interested in our character than He is our comfort. (laughs) And character is developed as we battle those things that want to rule us and displace the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 12, 11, All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrow yet to those who have been trained by it. Afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. James 1, beginning with verse 2, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the test of your faith produces endurance, that that endurance have perfect results, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It is the battle, it is the trial, as we wrestle with these things, that our godly character is developed. Some, it seems, God looks at and says, the battle is so great, I know they could never win, so I'll deliver them. But for most of us, God wants to develop our character, and that happens through the excellencies of life. On this trip, I had my 83rd birthday. You know, I'm thankful that God has kept me in the world for 83 years. Not that being in the world is anything good at all. But he's had 83 years to work on me. And I hope he has a few more because I've got a long ways to go. (laughs) And I just, when I come before him, I want him to say, well, I'm not glad you're here, but well done, good and faithful servant. My father and I made a Choctaw Indian bowl when I was a boy. We made it out of bodark. Some of you don't know what bodark is. Some call it Osage apple. It's a tree native to Oklahoma. So dense the wood won't float. And if you cut a branch and wait until it's fully seasoned and you start to work on it, you just can't do it. It's too dense. It's too hard. And so when you first cut the branch, if you're going to make it into a bow, for example, you take an adze or a draw knife or something and you start working it until you have a general shape. While it's green and somewhat tender, you can do that. And then you put it aside for a long time and it seasons. And then you start doing the fine work. And that's where our lives are with God. When we first come to Jesus, the Lord can work on us. We get rid of all this, get rid of the bark, get rid of the... But as the years go by, it takes precise work and fine-tuning. And the longer we're in the world, the more opportunity God has to form us. I thank the Lord that He has 83 years to many, many times chew me up and spit me out (laughs) and work to refine because that's the only way it happens. Thanks be to God for delivering us from ourselves.
Thanks be to God for providing forgiveness for our post-conversion sins. I, I Almost everyone, I suppose I say everyone, everyone after coming to Christ, being immersed into Christ for forgiveness of sins, throughout his life will stumble, fall short of the glory of God, will sin. I have, and so have you. When that happens, if we are really born again, we experience shame. Uh, A sense of failure, even self-hate. Is there any hope? I'm so thankful that John wrote 1 John. 1 John 1, beginning chapter 1, verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. Truth isn't in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar. His word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. I'll tell you, those are some of the most precious verses in all of the Bible. Think about Judas. What a tragedy. He was so overcome with shame, so overcome with self-hatred, that he went out and hanged himself. He died unforgiven. Horrible thing to think about, but Jesus said of Judas, it would have been better for Judas if he had never even been born. I find it easy for me as I think about Judas, to weep over this man. Because in so many ways, Judas represents the human race. Remember when Jesus in the triumphal entry came to the Mount of Olives and the path turned slightly to the left and suddenly before him was the gleaming city of Jerusalem, the beautiful temple of Herod. And everyone was rejoicing and yet he wept over Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stoneth those that are sent unto thee, how often I would have drawn you unto myself as a hen gathereth her chicks under her wings, but you would not henceforth, 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 desolation. And he wept over the city. I find it easy to weep over Judas, Judas, Judas. You know, some people in this world, Christians, when they fall short of the glory of God, when they commit sin, they're so overwhelmed with shame and self-hatred that they do what Judas did. Maybe not a rope, drugs, alcohol, wild living, almost anything to either relieve the pain or keep one's mind so busy that it cannot 
dwell on the shame. Now certainly not all who take their lives are doing it for shame, but in Judah's case so and so many. Let me urge on everyone who's here today feeling ashamed of your life, feeling ashamed of your misdeeds, feeling ashamed to the point you even hate yourself. Don't be a Judas, be a Peter. (laughs) Think about Peter. The night he was betrayed, before it happened, Jesus said to his disciples, uh, you know, he began to tell them about what was going to happen to him. And he said, by me, even those that are close to me are going to be offended and many will fall away. Peter said, oh, no, Lord, even though all fall away, because of you, I'll never fall away. And Jesus said, Peter, I say to you this very night, you'll fall away before the cock crows. You will have denied me three times. Peter said, oh, even if I die with you, I'll never forsake you. And all the disciples said the same thing, Matthew 26, 31 and following. But exactly what Jesus predicted happened. Remember after the arrest, Peter and John followed the soldiers and Jesus and they came to the courtyard of the high priest. Jesus was being examined inside the building And as they came in, Peter went to the campfire where some of the officers and others were there. And one person began to look intently at Peter, a woman, and she said, You're Galilean, you're one of his. Oh, no, I I don't know him. And a little bit later, another one said, I think I saw you with him, you're one of his. Oh, no, I, I don't know him. And then... When the third one said it, Peter denied it and cursed. And I could repeat something similar to what he said, but because there are tender ears here, I'll not do so. But he cursed and denied Jesus. And evidently, just as he did that, they were moving Jesus from one place to another, and he was on a raised step and looked at Peter, and Peter looked at Jesus, and the cock crowed. Can, and Peter, Scripture says, went out into the night and wept bitterly. But he didn't do what Judas did. He and John followed a distance away. John got close. To the point Jesus could even speak to John. Peter evidently watched from afar. After the crucifixion, after the body had been taken down by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus and put in a tomb, Peter and John evidently went into an apartment in Jerusalem and there they stayed till resurrection day. And then that beautiful scene when Jesus was with his disciples in Galilee And as Peter had denied him three times, three times Jesus said, Peter, do you love me? Yea, Lord, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yea, Lord, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yea, Lord, you know I love you. (laughs) Three times he denied. Three times he confessed. Peter, who had deserted our Lord, who under stress had denied the Lord. Even in Jesus' darkest hour, he had denied him. 
Peter was forgiven. You've seen the picture of Atlas from Roman mythology, and there's one insurance company that uses this symbol. Atlas bowed over with the world on his back. (laughs) Sad to say, Christians sometimes walk around with the weight of their failures on their back when there's no reason to do so. Because a merciful, loving God reaches out when we acknowledge and confess our sins to take the load off the shoulder and say, you are forgiven. This morning, if you're one who is plagued with the burden of your failures, your sins, even after you've known salvation and pledged to make Jesus your Lord, do not despair. (laughs) The gracious, loving God wants to lift the load if you let him, and it will be lifted. Praise his name. Thanks be to God for his giving spirit. Let me say this. How can we adequately express thanksgiving to God for his forgiving spirit? One of the most effective ways is for us to extend forgiveness to all who have harmed us and wronged us. A principle in Matthew 10.8, freely you have received, freely give. I have freely received forgiveness. What a, sometimes you almost wish somebody do something mean to you so I could forgive them. It's so, such a blessing. I thought, what if the Lord would someday just give me a million dollars in silver dollar coins? They don't have any of those anymore. If he did, wouldn't it be fun to get a, a huge truck and put them in it and just go down the street and throw money at everybody? flamboyantly. (laughs) What a blessing it is to flamboyantly extend forgiveness even as our Lord has extended to us. In the model prayer, Jesus said, if you don't forgive, God won't forgive you. And so, well, I better forgive him or God won't forgive me. What a terrible attitude. Joyously, flamboyantly, (laughs) let us distribute forgiveness. Aren't we blessed? Aren't we blessed? Thanks be to God.